it's the end of the semester, isn't it? End of the year. It's been a good one. Thanks for being here. Um, we expect to see, uh, it, and it's all up to you, by the way, we expect to see twice the number of people here next year, right? So figure out a way to double the size next year because we want more people here. Yeah, it would be great, but it's great to have you um, tonight. And I enjoyed being back in the sanctuary. There's just something cool about it. Um, hope you enjoyed it, too. When I was a kid, I um, grew up in South Florida, like way down South Florida, um, next to West Palm Beach. So there was no such thing as snow or cold weather, right? Um, every once in a while, we get what they called a cold snap, which meant that it might be 50 early in the morning and 70 by noon or something like that. You know, that, that was it. Now, I, I was born, yeah, I, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and I always had this fantasy about living up north as a kid and living in a place that had four seasons and all that kind of stuff. And because I was born in Kentucky, both my parents were from there, um, we would always make this journey to Louisville, Kentucky at Christmas time. My dad was associated with the college, so was my mom, so we always had a Christmas break and we'd go at Christmas time back up to Louisville. And I always looked forward to snow. And it was a great, you know, fun experience for me. I don't think I had a Christmas in South Florida until I was 18 years old. That shows you how important this trip was to us. Now, um, I call it a trip. And to me, it was an important trip. And it was an enjoyable trip because there was something about, I don't know what it was. There was something like about the coziness of everybody, the three of us boys, being packed in one car. And the trip, as we, as we continued north, it got colder and colder and colder. So every time you get out to go to the bathroom or get a drink or, you know, do gas, we would jump out and find out how cold it was in Georgia, North Florida, Tennessee, and then in, all the way up to Kentucky. It was a cool thing to do. And my dad used to have our car completely packed. He was a meticulous packer, and he had three different places for all of us boys to sleep. Mine was on the floor. He had created in the back of our huge Chrysler Newport, 1967 Chrysler Newport. That's back when cars were uh, as big as minivans, except they called them cars. And it was in the, the back, between the, the back seat and the front seat, and there's, you know, uh, a hump in, in the floorboard, and my dad made these flat boxes so that that hump disappeared and it was completely flat in the back, and then he padded it and put a blanket on top of that, and I used to sleep on the floor behind the seat. My little brother, middle brother, he used to sleep on the seat right above my head. So I'm on the floor. He's here. And my little brother would sleep up on the floor at my mother's feet in the front. And there was, there was enough room for all of us. Of course, we didn't do seat belts back then. Nobody even thought about it, right? So we're all packed in there. And it's really cozy. And there's just the hum of the engine. And, and you just can't wait to get Kentucky. And it's just nostalgic. Just thinking about it makes me feel comfortable. That was a trip that was about as close to what the pilgrims in the ancient world, the Jewish pilgrims, would have experienced at least once a year if they had the money. They would go, no matter where they were in Israel, they would make this pilgrimage, this journey up to Jerusalem. And when they made the journey, of course they were in a car and all that kind of stuff, they traveled together. They never traveled alone. Never traveled alone. There was security in our car. I knew Dad had everything under control. He knew exactly where we were going. He had everything planned out meticulously. 
These pilgrims, they would travel together as a group. They would never travel alone. And the reason they wouldn't is because it was perilous to travel alone. It was a scary activity. You didn't just go out and travel by yourself. You traveled together. So as they traveled together up to Jerusalem, they had songs, apparently, that they would sing. And we think, we have really good reason to believe this is true, that the songs that the pilgrims always sang are in the Psalter that we've been talking about for the last four weeks. And they're in a section called a song or songs of ascents, to ascend up, okay? And apparently they sang these songs while they traveled. So get this, you're a little kid, right? And you're with your family and you got some animals along, of course, because they're carrying the load. And you're all excited about going to Jerusalem. And all the way up, the adults are singing the songs and the kids are singing the songs. And you're stopping at night, camping out alongside the road or maybe in an inn. It's just great. I mean, I can imagine thinking that was the most fun in the world. You know who else did that when he was a little boy? Jesus. Remember the story of Jesus when they were on their way to Jerusalem? That's what they were doing. When he got lost and they couldn't find him, he left the group. These songs are found in Psalm 120, and they run from 120 through um, 134, technically. Those were the songs we think they sang as they went up to Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do is just select the first three and say something about all three as it relates to us being pilgrims, right? We're not pilgrims the same way they were. We'll never understand what that kind of pilgrimage was like. But the images that the Bible delivers to us tells us we're pilgrims, right? We're walking to our celestial city. We're we're going to our new Jerusalem. Eventually, we're going to be there. We're going to arrive. And as pilgrims, we're walking together, not alone, together. So what are these songs all about? What do they have to teach us about being pilgrims? I begin with 120. Okay, here, here's the words from 120. I'd love to know what the music was. Um, we lost the music a long time ago. We still have the words. So you can make up a tune in your mind as I read them. <laughs> I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I'm a man of peace. But when I speak, they are for war. You know what that psalm is about for a pilgrim? That psalm for a pilgrim is about acknowledging reality. The pilgrim in that song basically says this. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. I get that as a pilgrim. I long for peace. I long for everything to be right. Because I have this vision, this notion that everything ought to be made right. But I realize everything is not right. And I acknowledge that. 
Straight up, I acknowledge it. At the beginning of my pilgrimage, I say, I know God, things are not right. I long for peace, and I live in this place where everybody hates peace. And there's war all around me. It's an acknowledgement that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, You guys are not as old as me, but you know a little bit of history. You haven't lived through as much of it as I have. But I'll tell you something about I'll tell you something about your current life and every human being in the future. Every human being in the future, all of us in the past and all of us currently, have this desire deep inside to make everything right. And every one of us somehow think there's a solution to fix the problem. I mean a human solution. We look for it in an election. We look for it in a new relationship. We look for it in a new job. We look for it in money. You add the things to your list. Every one of us says things are not right and it can be fixed. I know it can. If, if only this takes place, if only this happens, then it'll be all right. See, the pilgrim says, I get the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but I also acknowledge the fact that they're never going to be the way they're supposed to be until God absolutely fixes it. So I walk through a world acknowledging reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be, thanking God that I have an insight into that so that I can live in this present world. And delight in this present world, even though I know things are not the way they're supposed to be. But you see, part of acknowledging that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and being okay with that, is an acknowledgement that you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued. Or to put it another way, we're part of the problem. So, the history of pilgrims in the Bible starts all the way back, let's say for instance, with Abraham. Abraham basically rejects Mesopotamia, the place that is for war and he's for peace. Use that image. Moses basically rejects Egypt and says, I'm going to leave it all behind and I'm going to follow you into the promised land. There's this overwhelming sense that the people of God say to themselves, I know what this world's all about. It's not the way it ought to be. And even though I live in it, I've got to reject it and I've got to walk with God. So I have to turn my thinking upside down. I have to acknowledge reality and I have to realize that there's no human solution to the deep problems of life. Um, I read uh, a guy called Abraham Herschel one time when uh, he talked about how we in this contemporary world that we live in actually think somehow um, that we can fix it. Listen to this this quote. He said, man, or humans, reign supreme with the forces of nature as their only possible adversary. Man alone, or humans alone, free and growing stronger. In this worldview, God is either non-existent or unconcerned. It is human initiative that makes history. 
And it's primarily by force that things change. Man can attain his own salvation. I ask you, is anything more characteristic of our world than a quote like that? That's really what people believe for the most part. And the pilgrim says, I don't believe it. I'm going to acknowledge reality. Man cannot attain his own salvation. I need to be rescued. God's got to fix this in the end. And I'm trusting in an invisible God who promises someday he's going to put everything at right. And I'm going to follow that invisible God. That's being a true pilgrim. Acknowledging reality. Second part of uh, pilgrimage, it, Psalm 121 Um, it says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. This is a famous one, right? You've heard this one before. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Again, imagine the pilgrims. They're singing that song. You know, at first when you read that passage, you think, uh, you think the, the hills is where the help comes from. But if you look carefully at the passage, all you've got to do is just read, right? You don't have to have a big bad interpreter to understand this. It's not about the hills. He says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The hills? No. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. The one who created the hills and the valleys. The one who created the universe. My help comes from the Lord. It's only from the Lord. As a matter of fact, um, we think that most of the people who read this would have actually thought of the hills as not a really great place for pilgrims. Um, It was a dangerous place. You didn't travel up there. Not only was it hard to get there, um, but it was a place of idolatry and all kinds of, um, well, false worship of false gods in the hills. That's what we know from the Hebrew Scriptures. So they weren't saying, oh, I look to the hills. It's the hills where my help is. It's God where my help comes from. I will depend completely on God. Don't you love the images, though? Your foot will not slip, right? And you think, okay, that's a promise he didn't keep. I know a lot of people whose feet slipped. It's not a Pollyanna kind of statement. The pilgrim didn't walk and say, my foot will not slip and I won't turn my ankle and things won't hurt. The pilgrim was basically saying, God, you are so sovereign in this journey called a pilgrimage with you that you will not let me. Now, now think outside body now, right? Think about spirit. Think about real person. You will not let me slip so that I cannot continue in the journey. No matter what comes my way, I will not fall down so much that I cannot get back up. God, you're with me that way. You won't let my foot slip on the journey. As a matter of fact, the pilgrim says, the Lord watches over you during the day and the sun won't smite you by day. One of the things that was the worst kind of thing for pilgrims was sunstroke. 
especially in that region of the world. I mean, terrible heat, and um, you could die of sunstroke. The pilgrim says, God, you're not going to let me go down that way. Um, I'll be protected because you'll let me continue to follow. There's also a phrase in there that actually means moonstroke. Kind of a weird thing. The sun will not smite me by day, nor the moon by night. How does the moon smite you by night? It's a metaphor. It basically means I'm going out of my head. I'm so tired and worn out. I'm so exhausted. I'm so confused that I lose my bearings, that I don't know where I am, and I'm loony, right? Lunar, moon. The moon's not going to strike you at night. You're going to be okay. I'm going to watch over every one of your steps. I will not let you fall if you keep your trust in me. No matter how bad it is, no matter how deep the pain, no matter how much you feel alienated, I will always be with you. I'd like to insert the words of Jesus in here as an interpretive tool. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what the pilgrim is hearing from God. No matter what, I'm always going to be there. Keep walking. So, you know what all that is right there? The first was recognizing reality, right? Acknowledging reality. The second part we just talked about is acknowledging sovereignty. You, you, you recognize reality in the darkness of the world and you recognize sovereignty right alongside of it that the one who created all of that is your God, your sovereign God. And he's going to walk you through it all. And you're going to be okay. The third psalm is 123. Um, I'm sorry, 122. I almost hate skipping through these psalms like this because they're so rich and there's so much stuff here. But let me go to 122. That psalm says, I will rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Remember, that's their, that's their destination. That's where they want to be. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That's where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statue given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand and the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You look at that and you think, well, that's interesting. I don't go to Jerusalem. Um, I don't have the same affinity to a city that they did. What's going on here? Let me suggest that that symbol, Jerusalem, it stands for everything being right, right? A city that is neatly fitted together. A place where everything comes together in a well-ordered way, the way it's supposed to be. That was their visual image of Jerusalem. But remember, their visual image of Jerusalem rested on the bedrock of one place, the highest point in Jerusalem, the center of the city, which was, what do you think? Just guess. The temple. Right at the heart of everything was the temple. Right at the heart of the city in their minds, metaphorically and even literally, I mean, maybe not 
you know, mile by a mile, literally. But at the heart of everything was worship of God. So when they thought about going to Jerusalem, they weren't just talking about a great city. They were talking about the center of worship of God. So you've got acknowledging your reality. Then you've got acknowledging sovereignty. And then you've got acknowledging worship. That as a matter of fact, worship is the heart of life itself. So the pilgrim says, I'm on my journey, acknowledging that I must renounce the world. I'm on my journey, trusting in the sovereignty of God. And I'm on my journey, I'm going to Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, because it's there that everything fits together. Um, Eugene Peterson um, was a pastor for a long time before he wrote a lot of books and translated the Bible in the thing called The Message, right? He tells a story one time um, when he was making a pastoral call. He uh, was planning to go visit a lady who was having some real trouble. I mean, emotionally and in a lot of ways, she just was a mess. And he said, I, I went to visit her, and um, I knocked on the door, and she said, come in, it's open. And I opened the door, and I looked across the room, and there she sit, sat at the window. And she didn't even turn to me. She just kept doing what she was doing. You know what she was doing? She was cross-stitching. And she said to him, Pastor, I think I figured something out while I was waiting for you. I'm cross-stitching a picture. And she said, The fabric is stretched tightly by a frame. And I can't make sense or order or create this picture without the frame. She said, it dawned on me that I'm losing my framework for life. Everything's just everywhere. I'm just all scattered. I'm stitching stuff up without a frame. It was almost like Eugene Peterson could say to himself, okay, you got it, I'm going to go home. But, of course, I'm sure they talked about that. He uses it as an image in his book. And he suggests, and I think he is so right, guys. He suggests that worship is like a frame. When you go up to Jerusalem, when you go to the house of the Lord, when you worship God in the midst of life, it's like a frame that holds it all together. It's the real frame that creates the fabric of life and makes sense out of life. Why? Because this is not all there is. Life that you're experiencing is just a tiny blip on the radar screen of humanity and on your eternal life. And you've got to have the framework of worship to hold it together. Have you ever noticed, um, maybe you haven't, because you guys probably haven't started decorating houses yet, but... Sometimes you'll get a picture or a poster that you think is a wonderful picture. If you're into this kind of stuff, if you take that picture to a frame maker who knows exactly what to do with frames, you know what he or she will do with it? They will pick out a frame for you that focuses you on the image that you love. And the frame will highlight colors and things you never saw before. And all of a sudden, when you look at the picture, it comes alive in a new kind of way. 
Why? Because it's a framework for it. Worship is like that for us. It's a frame. It helps us to focus on the things that are most important in life. It's not an activity that we just do. It really is the center of life. When I grew up, I'm back at Florida now, um, we built a house when I was in uh, seventh grade, and my dad did most of the building. He was a college professor, and we did it in the summer. My grandfather came down. He was a carpenter. He helped us build the house. And as a kid in seventh grade, I was a part of every single part of the house. I remember digging the footer. I remember starting the framing process on the inside of the house with my grandfather and telling him I was the oldest in the family, Grandpa, I want to start with my bedroom. And he just laughed. He said, boy, you can't do it that way. You have to get a plumb line. You have to set it up here, and we'll get to your bedroom eventually. But you've got to start with this corner. So I waited, and eventually we framed my bedroom and all these kinds of things. But you know what happened long before we did any of the framing of the bedroom or putting on the roof or anything like that? It doesn't happen up here, but in South Florida, it does. We poured a footer. And in the footer were what you call rebar. It was big, long pieces of steel. And they ran all the way through the foundation, and they came up through the walls, and they stuck out at the top of the walls. And they were there for a reason. That rebar in hurricane country, which is where I grew up, tied the whole structure together. Whenever we put the trusses on top of the house, we reached up and took straps and connected it to the rebar. Every part of the house was in perfect tension poured to the foundation with the rebar. It was an invisible framework that held it all together. I'm suggesting that worship is that for us. Worship is that invisible, sometimes visible when you're here, but the invisible reality of worship is the framework that holds life together. Every bit of it. Notice in this passage, um, 122, it's talking about corporate worship, right? Let's go up to the house of the Lord. Private worship is wonderful. Quiet time is amazing. But it's important to worship together in community because it's in the context of Christian community when you worship together, hear the teaching of God's Word, pray together, listen together in that context, the world comes into focus. I want you to remember this. What you discover in worship, what you discover in worship needs to define the rest of your week. It's not a high point. It's reality. It's in worship that everything comes into clarity. And you need to hang on to it like a framework because it's really, truly Life, abundant life. Um, Unfortunately, um, for most of us in an American culture, um, worship has become something else. Listen to this quick quote from Eugene Peterson. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Not a feeling for God, 
that is, that is expressed in an act of worship. Let me just put it backwards. Peterson saying, what we have come to believe is that worship is a feeling for God that we express, and then we enter into worship. And he says, no, we've got it backwards. Worship is an act that develops feeling for God. In the context of worship, that's when I come alive and I have the feeling for God. I don't drum up the feeling for God in my own personal expression of worship. It's in worship, the act of worship, that a feeling for God emerges. Or put it another way, we worship what is true. And sometimes we feel it. We worship what is true. And sometimes we feel it. Worship is an activity. It's a command. It's really the way we sharpen our tool. The tool of life. Whatever you got in your tool belt, whatever you're going to do with the activity of life, worship sharpens it. Um, one of the things I grew up doing was landscaping. And I had an old guy that trained me in a lot of landscaping things. And he used to tell me, Bobby, <laughs> the success of your endeavor is no better than the sharpness of your tool. He said, you never waste time when you sharpen your tool. Man, was he right. It could be a mower blade. It could be a hoe. It could be a machete. It could be an axe. It could even be a chainsaw. If the tool was sharpened, it was ready to go. Worship does that for us. It sharpens us to understand life. So what's, what's the point? The point is this, you guys are getting ready to go out for the summer, right? Don't, whatever you do, <laughs> don't deny reality. Um, own it. Life sucks. People are mean. Our culture's going backwards. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Own it. Can I say this? Yeah, you're, you're like my kids. Every one of you here is younger than my kids. Grow up and own it. That's the way life is. It's just hard and it's tough. Own it. Because that's not going to change because the world's falling. And things are going backwards. But when you own that reality, it helps you to understand your, your discomfort with life. And you can actually praise God in the midst of it. You can say, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And you've given me a hope and a joy concerning my life in the midst of this reality that I can actually have an effect on it and I can transform it and that this reality is going to change. Someday it's going to be okay. God's going to fix it. There's no human story like that. There isn't one. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. 
but it's a reality that God is going to fix it. So acknowledge reality and then hang on to the sovereignty of God. Remember that God will never leave you and never forsake you no matter where you are this summer or if you're a senior, you're on your way out. You're on your way to grad school. You're on your way to the workforce and life's going to get tough. I want to promise you, you've got to promise yourself and remind yourself, God is never going to leave me or forsake me. He is always there with me and he's shaping me in the midst of all of this. He's doing it. Um, you guys have dreams and expectations and hopes that are wonderful. But there's a wall out there that you're going to hit sometime and it's going to feel like it's not the world I thought it was going to be. But it's the world that's out there. And God's in it. And he's with you. Believe it. And then whatever you do, for God's sake, whatever you do, don't abandon worship. It's the center of life. It brings you back to where you know things are true. And in corporate worship, it helps to inform your reality because you don't want to be alone. You don't want to be on your own. You want to be in a community of Christ followers that reorients your mind and your heart to see things clearly because the world's going to get cloudy. So whatever you do, don't abandon worship. Find Christian community and stay with it, and it will help you in your pilgrimage with God. I promise you it will. I want to I close by praying for you, okay, as you go out this summer, um, some of you for the last time, um, some of you for just the summer, um, and then I guess we can do Q&A if, if, if people want to do that. But it's up to you, but let me, just let me pray and we'll go from there, okay? God, I thank you for every one uh, of these students uh, here tonight. I thank you, Lord, that before the foundation of the world, you chose them to be holy and blameless in your sight. In love, you adopted them to be children of God, to the praise of your glorious grace which you've freely given us in the one you love. And Lord, we thank you that it's in you that we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and the joy that really is unspeakable. We thank you, Lord, that we live in the same world that those who do not know you live in. But we thank you most of all that we have a compass for our journey. We know in our quietest, deepest moments that you are there, that you will never leave us, and that you will never forsake us. And Lord, we would just rejoice in that right now. But as we rejoice in it right now and believe it right now, may it become deep within us like a root of righteousness so that we can rejoice in it out there and believe it out there and be with you always. We know you never leave us or forsake us, but sometimes we just walk away like those lost sheep that the Scripture tells us about. And as we do, call us back to yourself. Lord, I pray, pray your blessing on these students as they go forward. I pray for the seniors who are about to leave this 
well, this cocoon of college, um, which has prepared them but is not the real world yet. I pray that you will bless them and keep them. You'll make your face shine upon them and that you'll give them peace. I pray that in the midst of uh, the struggles, they will never forget to turn to you. I pray that in the midst of the joys and successes, they will also turn to you and thank you. That they will thank you for every breath they breathe and for every blessing that comes their way because it's all from your hands. I pray, Lord, for those who um, are to go out this year and encounter graduate school or some other professional training that's academic in nature. It'll be a new level. It will be rather intense. There'll be times it's completely overwhelming. And there's going to be those days they're going to wonder, what in the world did I choose this for? Lord, they chose it because they prayed about it, because they trusted you. So remind them of that. And give them joy and peace and security and comfort in the midst of the difficulty of their situation. And I pray, Lord, for the students who are leaving uh, tonight and going to finals and then going home. Sometimes that can be delightful and sometimes it can be a terrible irritant. They hardly know how to fit in anymore. Um, they're adults in a new kind of way and sometimes going back home is just well, painful. So we pray, Lord, that you will give them your grace and peace this summer. Uh, whatever they do um, as work or ministry or traveling, we pray that you will protect them and bring them back to us. Pray that the summer will be a summer of spiritual growth um, so that when they return, they can rejoice in what you've done in their life and look forward to a new year um, as they worship you. And Lord, we thank you for that promise um, that comes straight from Jesus Christ himself, our eternal Savior, who promises to restore all things, that in the midst of life you're never going to leave us and you're never going to forsake us. And we thank you, Lord, that in the end you're going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more pain or sorrow or dying. And you're going to make everything new. What a great story, Lord. What hope we have. What a wonderful Savior you are. Help us to rejoice in you, our Lord and King. In your name we pray. Amen.